0: Welcome to the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill. This podcast is about an idea. It's the radical idea that queerness is a gift and that the divine celebrates it rather than merely accepts it. We'll explore the special role that queer people are meant to play in the coming spiritual awakening. Through the lives and stories of queer people, we'll explore the many ways of approaching the divine and how the sacred reveals itself in everyday actions. Most of all, this is a podcast about love. It's about the love of the universe. It's about love between people, and it's about the love a community can share with one another. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossan-Hill, and my guest today has so many disparate interests and is involved in so many things that sometimes I just get exhausted watching him, which is to say a lot because as a manifesting generator, I have a lot of disparate interests and I'm involved in a lot. So my guest, uh, Darren Chittick, is the pastor of The Church Within, a church that sees many paths leading to one God and Darren is also a massage therapist a maker a creator a retreat facilitator and just really funny and enjoyable person who really has a lot of depth when talking about spirituality so Darren welcome to the show thank you Julian thanks for having me yeah it's my pleasure to have you here so one question i ask all of my guests will kick off with is what does queer spirituality mean to you
1: I think for me that i'll have to be i want to answer it just in a kind of very personal way because i think what being queer means for so many of us and especially when it comes to spirituality is so diverse um, that i would hate to try to speak for someone else Uh, a number of years ago i was talking to a good friend who is an episcopal priest and we were talking about just this idea of religion and religiosity and what does that look like for us and i suddenly had a metaphor (laughs) uh, as is often the case. Uh, and if anyone knows very many clergy people you grow tired of our constantly having a metaphor. Um, so I realized that there was a very long time that I wanted to be inside some kind of organization in a way that I thought was belonging, but I've learned from our friend, Brene Brown is really fitting in. Uh, and when I discovered what belonging felt like fitting in was as she predicted, uh, Gross. Uh, I didn't feel good about fitting in. Um, and so what I've recognized is that my own queered spirituality or queer spirituality looks like living in the wilderness. And I really like it out here. And sometimes I'll go to somebody's camp that is very defined and I will sit at the fire and I will sup with them and have a wonderful experience and feel very much that I belong. And then I just return back to the wilderness again. Um, And I think that comes from people being a people who have been exiled. And we come to this point where we either decide I'm going to whittle whittle myself down so that I can fit in again where I was pushed out, whether because someone told me to leave or because they just made it so uncomfortable to stay or that I become more fully myself in a way that. Belonging persists even in places where I might not fit in um and so I think queer spirituality is kind of a liberated spirituality uh at its maturity um but I think when it's not at its maturity sometimes it can be you know it's something else just like anything else that's not at it's at its maturity so when ripened queer spirituality for me is very much about belonging in the world in creation um and in humanity uh, and what makes that special is that anyone who is told they don't belong to be able to find our belonging again, I think that's really powerful.
0: I, I love that definition because it's really spirituality and spiritual communities and even sometimes the gay community it becomes about fitting in about conforming to whatever the body image, the look, the the thoughts, everything and it's magical when you are really in your in your own being, when you're really representing and living as you are, as your soul wants you to be. And that authenticity is so magical and so powerful. And I love that idea of belonging um, as part of that, because it's really a powerful concept. So tell us a little bit about your own personal spiritual journey.
1: Uh, I was a country kid. So, always great for us queer folk to get to grow up in rural America. Uh, we always lived in the country or a very small town or a farm. So, last in my kind of teen years, we lived on a working farm and had hogs and farmed the dirt and 100 acres and about 15 acres of that was woods. Um, so, when I was... In elementary school, we lived in a small town and it was next door to the first Presbyterian church of that small town. So I went to church there (laughs) because it was next door. I was the only person in my family going most of the time. My mom would have stints of going, but I went almost every Sunday because rather ironically, it was one of the only places I wasn't bullied. And so it was a really early safe place for me to be, um, and it was also Interestingly, a place that I felt my gifts were valued. So even from being being pretty young, I think we moved to that house when I was nine. So from nine to fifteen, I was going to this place. Um, But I was singing. I would do parts of the service. I was active in you know Sunday school, and then we moved away, and that stressed it because it was about forty five minutes. So I would only go once in a while. And then I came to a point in my life where I realized that the loving God I had learned about in that place wasn't going to love me as a queer person. And so I decided that I was just done with it. So that if that, if, if the all loving God wasn't actually all loving, then probably everything you've told me is untrue. And so I'm just going to wash my hands of it. Looking back, I'm really glad that that was my choice. And I don't know why that was my choice. I don't, you know, it's been so long ago. I'm 48 now. That's 29, 30 years ago. Um, I can't imagine what my life would be like if I clung to, I need to somehow fit in here instead of just being like, well, I guess you've made a bunch of stuff up. Uh, And I think what it was predicated on mostly was I had had some experiences there. And in that part, in that time of my life, what we would probably call spiritual experiences, I don't know what people's language sounds like. uh, And it could very much have just been that safety. You know, what is holier than feeling safe and and as if you belong before you've been, when you don't fit anywhere (laughs) to be able to belong (laughs) as the kid who wants our church camp was music art drama and dance julian those people got me (laughs) Uh, and it was a presbyterian church i don't know if i said that but you know the presbyterian church has done pretty good by us um not perfect but in the big grand scheme they're towards the top so i decided i was an atheist uh, which did not take uh, because i Right. I decided at one, I was, I was dating this guy who was also an atheist. And as we often do, we self choose who are self select who are around. And so I was around a lot of atheists. And one day I said to this guy, I'm like, you don't not believe in God. You're just angry with God. And I was like, oh, shit! <laughs> now I'm going to have to think about this. Um, about the same time I first started studying massage. So I was 20 at this point uh was having kind of incredible experiences during these this apprenticeship because back then it was the wild west as far as regulation was concerned uh so it was just me and two other women in a room with another woman who was our instructor um and my instructor would say you're doing God's work and I was just like no such thing and it would make me so angry but you know something was happening uh about that time I found spiritual community um which also didn't immediately take because i walked into this kind of room full of as i recall it middle-aged women wearing purple flowy clothes and i was like oh i don't i don't know if this is for me uh but then you know going off and on a few years later found out that they were doing a ministerial studies program and was like oh i want to do that uh, so that was kind of a turning point point. Um, and in those intervening years was looking just at all kinds of spiritual paths So that initial breakup, the atheism that was living completely outside of that sphere, I thought coming to recognize, oh, the experiences I've always had, I'm still having, uh, so let's look what that can look, let's see what that can look like. Um, and then here I am at 48, my 10th year of being professional clergy. No one saw
0: it coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing journey. And it seems it's it's interesting to me how so many queer people have these very convoluted journeys where they grow up in a faith that eventually doesn't feel like they belong to anymore, and then they go on this sort of hero's journey or quest to find where they do belong. And some people come full circle. And some move on into other paths that, that fit them better. So tell me a little bit about the church within. You've been the pastor there for, what, 10 years now? And yeah. it, and it's a fairly progressive, open spiritual community. Tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah. So the organization is about 30 years old. Um, it was initially founded by a woman named Louise Dunn who had been to some degree of entering into monastic life herself as a nun uh left that was involved in the unity movement um in the 90s and wanted to be and this is my recollection so if louise dunn listens to this and my details are wrong i hope i don't get in trouble uh <laughs> uh Was considering becoming ordained through that organization while working as a spiritual counselor Um, and unity's ordination process, at least at that time was like seven years and she's like. Friends, this isn't my first time at the rodeo I don't i'm like seven years so some folks that she was in Community with really urged her to start something. Um, The church within is what was born out of it, and she says the church was born out of a sense of discontent that there were not safe and embracing spiritual communities available to the LGBTQ community at the time. Uh, And so she, a cis straight woman with some other cis straight folks and some queer folks of all ilk, were like, well, let's make that. At the beginning, the church was very much like the the Unity Movement, so New Thought, they used A Course in Miracles a lot. Uh, Louise was there for about a decade. Then we had a year without her. My ministerial studies started just before she left. We had a year of rotation. I was involved in that rotation. Then we hired a woman named Yvonne Brandenburg who had been 30 years uh, Methodist minister. Um, and district superintendent absolutely brilliant woman mystic um so i I was there for her entire 12 year tenure she's very much amongst my greatest mentors along with her husband and then i stepped in and during yvonne's time i think that you know her first language she would say is bible um, and christianity and she would call herself a non-exclusive christian with deep interest and practice in zen Buddhism um and sufism so during her time we had a really strong relationship with the sufi community here in indianapolis during a portion of those those 12 years um we moved from being in kind of a park 100 space where there was no like industrial business space where there was no one else around on sunday to being in a neighborhood and really started living out the kind of next level of our our life as a community which meant being in community with, you know, outside of our our own gatherings. I stepped in after she retired. Um, my biggest concern was, and I said this to her, um, I'm worried that I'm not going to be Christian enough for them because I'm not a Christian. And she said, oh, Darren, I think people hear us exactly the same way. And I said, well, I've never really thought that you had lost it until now, but I'm a little worried about your grasp <laughs> <your, laughs> on reality. <clears throat> uh, But what I have found in my kind of presenting, which is I'll use the teachings of Jesus from um, a man named Neil Douglas Klotz, who's absolutely brilliant Aramaic scholar, who has kind of relocated the words of Jesus culturally and in time, um, beginning with the Aramaic and not going through that kind of translation. I use Buddhism quite a bit. Uh, I use Kabbalah quite a bit. Um, some Sufism. We do a lot of poetry. Uh, And what Yvonne started saying and what I have carried on is that ours is a practical spirituality. So it's about where the rubber meets the road. What can I do right now that makes life better for me and those around me and for all people with no one left out? Um, What that has evolved into is sharing our building more and more so the church building is being used more now than it ever has been except during the pandemic when we weren't gathering there and we handed over the building to a pantry that did a a year and a half of pantry service um out of the building they took over everything and they were serving 1800 people a week over about three days with two hours of service each day absolutely amazing but we have a Buddhist group that meets on Monday evenings called Circle City Sangha that is in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. We have Indiana Dharma Recovery or Recovery Dharma rather that meets on Tuesdays and Fridays, which is a recovery program that's not based in AA and it is based in Buddhist understanding. Uh, we have a woman whose company is called Peridot Tarot, who is doing every other Wednesday night, a tarot exchange. So one will be an exchange, the other will be advanced tarot topics. And she teaches, uh, she's done one intro to tarot class at the church. She's getting ready to do another this fall. Um, and then we have group therapy on Sunday nights run by a local therapist and his wife, who's a creative writing instructor. And so they use writing tools. And, um, so the congregation is despite all that still an aging congregation, but don't tell them I said that, uh, they don't like to hear it. Um, we have this interesting kind of group of older folks and younger folks in this kind of gap in the middle. Uh, and we're just very much about the work of, if I can borrow from Judaism and Kabbalah on um, Tikkun Olam, which Rachel, Na- Dr. Rachel, Naomi Remen says, uh, is healing the world that touches us. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we'll hear that translated as repair the cosmos or repair the world, which I've always thought seemed really daunting. But hearing her rendering of healing the world that touches us makes it very approachable. Um, And so our work then is to A, let the world touch us so that we can do that work and to B, open ourselves up to whatever healing looks like in that moment um, with the people we happen to be with.
0: Yeah, I love that, and I, I love the emphasis on getting out in the community and the and the idea of practical spirituality. Just before we started recording this, we had a little conversation about the difference between religion and re- religiosity and spirituality. So, do you want to kind of share some of your thoughts on that?
1: Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, oftentimes, people will say spiritual, not religious. And I said that for a very long time, and sometimes I'll still kind of use a language because it's easy shortcut. I think that we lose something if we become so anti-religious that we forget that spirituality and religiosity have an interesting kind of relationship the story that i think happens over and over again through history is someone has a spiritual experience they start telling someone else about it that person's like oh my gosh i want that experience they start kind of doing what the first person did and then that grows into a thing or it doesn't then that person is gone for whatever reason and what's left are these instructions and it's like pointing for a cat the cat is like like the tuna is on the floor and you're pointing at it and the cat's licking your finger. And so we forget sometimes that that first person was trying to aim us towards something, some experience, some ineffable experience that is available to us if we will go get it. And we've just turned to the wrong direction. We're looking at the pointer instead of the, the delicious tuna, which we would never feed our cat off the floor. It would always be in a bowl. We're not monsters, Julian. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I'm interested in a spirituality that is not afraid of the history that it may have been born from. And I'm also interested in a natural spirituality that comes from observation. Um, So I'll talk about two things that come to mind with that. One is Octavia Butler. So I'm very much in love with the work of Octavia Butler, the parable of the sower, this idea of God is change. In that book over and over, and man, I just re—I've read it and then I just listened to it again, and I forgot how absolutely brutal and traumatic that book is. Um, man, it is a hard one. And in the midst of it, people keep saying to her, you've made this religion up. And she says, no, I've observed the world. This is what I have found. The only constant is change, therefore change is God. If we can shape change, then we can shape God. And that becomes the the kind of practice. Um, I'm so much taken by it that oftentimes she would. Kind of write that as infinity equals Delta. As change is you know, the eternal is change. And so I have that tattooed on the back of my hand so that I will see it regularly as a person who's not always that embracing of change, a little neurospicy, like things to go to plan. And I'm just like, um, the other place, the only place in just this world I live in where I have witnessed, this is a man named Gustavo Valdivia and Gustavo is a Peruvian anthropologist. And he grew up in Lima and explains that when you live in Lima, you kind of learn about, there are two things that are, are kind of keeping Peru from progress. One is the mountains because they are an obstacle and two is the people in the mountains who are also an obstacle. And at some point in his life, in his, you know, academic life, he's like, well, I want to go figure this out. I want to go meet these people that I've heard are on this obstacle and are part of it. And so he went out and he started working with these uh herders and spending years of time with them. And he's near this glacier because Peru is home to the largest mass of tropical glaciers in the world in the middle of these mountains. And so he went out and started looking at the glacier and observing it and listening to it and then he just started recording its sounds so he does field recordings he has for like 10 years now done field recordings of this glacier and thinking about what that means and climate change and the fact that the first ice that melts on a glacier is the oldest ice so thousands of year old frozen water is melting the glacier is retreating and Just kind of what that means so I by chance heard him speak at an event before the pandemic uh, was very moved by the stuff that he said as part of this panel we connected online, he was here this last year and reached out and said hey i'm going to be in Indianapolis as the resident artist. Uh, doing some programming, let me send you the stuff. So I went to a couple of the events and at the first one I'm just like this guy's a mystic. Like i'm listening to him say all the things that mystics say and every time he was about to say it he would give a disclaimer because he's in academia and he's like now i know this sounds and i know uh and so i said gustavo would would you speak to my church while you're here (laughs) He's like yeah i would love to i've never done that i was like great he's like what do you want me to talk about and i'm like what you always talk about so we sat down for a coffee and i pulled out my notebook that's always in my i wear this little kind of waist pouch thing uh because i'm me and i have this little notebook that i had to make because i couldn't find one that fit the pouch and i've written down gustavo is a mystic uh within a mysticism he has just found by observing the world and he's like can I take a picture of that? I said, are you going to show it to people and be like this crazy dude in Indianapolis said the scene? He's like, no, I just need to think about it. And I was like, God, I love you. <laughs> so I had been thinking a lot about things being temporary. And Gustavo says, I don't think anything's temporary or fleeting. It's like, I don't believe in ephemeral. He's like, cause I don't witness ephemeral. And I was like, please tell me more. And he flips the table to make a sound and he's like, we've heard that sound begin and end. we know what caused it. And so we might think that is ephemeral, but that sound was the result of all of eternity up until this moment. And so there's this continuity that from which that sound was born. And I was like, you so and so. (laughs) Um, And so. He, he said to my congregation, he did not know this was going to be funny to them. And he says, you know, I'm from Peru. And so I grew up Catholic, but things change. We have a lot of recovering Catholics. And so that really brought down the house. And he was just like, oh, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Now I get a sense of where I am. Uh, Cause things changed for a lot of us. And that's why we happen to find our way to this place called the church within. And then he just shared his journey of listening and what he found by listening and looking without all of those disclaimers. And I was like, this man completely outside of religiosity, completely outside of spiritual seeking has found exactly in the world. What I have found in the world and it removed some doubt and skepticism for me Mm -hmm. because he wasn't reading books that said this exists in the world. He was just listening to a glacier melting and listening to indigenous people and set, and came to realize that the, and he said, the mountains aren't an obstacle, they're a container. Yeah. And so wow. what do they contain? Right. So f- spirituality for most of us comes from a story that involves religion. There's a natural spirituality that I think is behind those religions. And then it gets co-opted. Right. We can look at a lot of religions and how they become co-opted because the people involved. Are still just people (laughs) and we arrive with unripened views. Right. And unless we if we become very attached to them, then we don't let them ripen and that impacts the religion or the religiosity in a way that stifles the spirituality but if we allow it to do what it was meant to do what it was intended to do for us then it ripens us in a way that that spirituality arises and then we can choose to stay in the religious path there are certainly many mystics who do or we can say oh i can be this in other ways and if that allows me to live out calling in the world in a way that would have been restricted if i chose to stay within those bounds then this is what i'll do and so i think that for me just pointing back is why i feel so at home in what i term the wilderness and what is very often quite literally the wilderness um, because i (laughs) like to go out in the trees
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i love I, i love all of that and there's a lot of common themes there to things that have come up on the show before about observing and making spirituality your own rather than just sort of focusing on the, the religious aspect. And then I, I, I love the idea of, you know, they're, they're by people and people are yeah. flawed. People have their things. And and uh, Jack Chanik, when he was on the show, talked about homophobia and transphobia in the craft. And his thing that he told people was if, if a coven doesn't accept you, move on. It doesn't mean that whole tradition is bad because you have to remember these individual groups are still run by people. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think maybe even equally as
1: important is it doesn't mean you are bad. Yes. Because that's yes. what we've been told historically is you don't belong here because you are bad. Right. And we take, we internalize that in a way that then we want to be validated as not bad. And when we find something that is ostensibly different and then we find out is not operating differently, we're like, Oh, what if they were right? What if I am bad? What if this isn't mine? And I think part of what makes queer folks, queer spirituality, maybe have a faster potential for ripening is that disruption that happens when we get pushed out and then we have to enter into the world without that community. And then either learn to thrive and build community of our own that is going to be wildly more diverse in every way because we're no longer insulated. Yeah. Um, and, I, and so I think that disruption, that exclusion, and I, sometimes it is hard for me, the, the things that come to our minds. Um, to the, there's someone probably famous whose name, I don't know, you know, points us, reminds us regularly that if we've had privilege, uh, that leveling the playing field equity is, seems like oppression. Right. And so I was listening to one of your other, uh, guests, and I don't remember who it was. Um, it could have been that conversation or the one after it was talking about you know what it means you know if you're in a rural area i think it was jack maybe you know they are that's their bias and i'm like oh and they also want to feel safe in the same way i want to feel safe and they perceive my existence as a threat to that safety and so they don't want me there and what they cannot grasp which is, I don't know why, what they seem to be unable to grasp, I'm projecting a little, uh, is that I, I actually want them, <laughs> right? Like I, I, I want you in my group. I want you with, you're my people because we're people, like we belong to each other. And my, I, I, I understand that my liberation seems threatening to you because it changes the world for you. Right. Everything that's been taught is different when I say I'm actually just like you, right? Like we are arisen from whatever it is, this this ground of common good or or whatever language we want to use. Like we've been born of this same soil uh, and, and I would love to be in common union with you. And they're like, it's it, that's terrifying to me. Right. So I, right. I, it opens a bit of empathy for me that i would like to not have to be quite honest um <clears throat> right I, I i i i like everyone want sometimes to just be victimized and not have to think uh but i in this way i realized and this just happened and i'm mad at you for it for this conversation because i was like drinking my coffee and i was like oh that's something i'm really gonna have to spend some time with It's knowing that, and I I know this, I say this, your liberation will threaten those who have not found that liberation, Um, but that's abstract, right? an abstraction that's universal and what have you. Um, But when we bring it down to you're a person and I'm a person and I now can, I actually do understand in a way that I don't want to understand why you are where you are. And how do I shift myself in your mind from a threat to a promise, from a threat to a potential.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a big shift. <laughs> it's a big shift. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause as you were talking about that, I was starting to think about the queer community too, and some of the division and things that we have there and the ways that, you know, we create, we, make judgments and we also go into situations with expectations of how we're going to be judged and how it creates friction and and creates all of that so it's something i'll have to to think about as well so interesting it's really Um, it is it also i think
1: leans into we have to recognize within our own community like I'll use the pride organization of my city as an example. So indie pride has historically been run by a group of cis gay white men of a certain age and it has, it became very problematic and they are yes. in transition and they're working really hard. Um, as cis gay white men who like of a certain age, who thought that marriage equity was our greatest goal, some of us, uh, we forgot that actually our our work isn't to assimilate right it's not revolutionary to assimilate we are here to be revolutionary to be transformational and so if we forget that if we deny that because we have found some safety because of now an elevated access to privilege right we had cis male privilege we had white privilege and now all of a sudden well we also can just get married and be just like everyone else um then suddenly Black queer folks, Indigenous queer folks, queer folks of color, trans folks that intersect with any of those identities are a huge threat. And there's just this kind of hum <laughs> from a certain right. portion of our community that's just like, "Shh, stop drawing attention. <laughs> like, you're going to be in the boat." And I'm like, "Friend, we're not even in the boat. <laughs> like, they're right. Just like let us walk to the dock." Um, and I think often about two kind of maybe conversely. A thing that we do is we are caregivers, like queer people are caregivers. We are nurses, we're social workers, we're activists, we're all of these kind of healing routines and we take care of everyone. Yes. Yes. So all of this movement about like, well, my religion says I can't take care of you. And I'm like, well, my heart and soul says that I have to take care of you. Yes. (laughs) So like, can we meet there? Like, what if we met there? right right i'm saving your life while you're calling me names yeah i mean, yeah. literally i just say words for a living but you know <laughs> doctors and nurses and therapists and all the things right it's right. such an interesting confluence of of, of
0: strictures and liberations yes Yes, definitely. And Toby Johnson, um, you know, has written quite a bit on gay spirituality from a Buddhist perspective. I saw him speak out of Between the Worlds a number of years ago. And one of the things he said was sort of the the gay superpower is is compassion because so many gay men or queer people end up in these caregiving, you know, nurturing kind of roles because it just seems to be a natural quality that comes with our queerness of having a great deal of compassion. Yeah,
1: one of the things that's happened for me in probably the last year or actually probably since last fall so i guess that is a year i forget when we are sometimes um
0: the pandemic did that to us all the (laughs) pandemic does it and i'm always
1: like when i first started in this position i would say i was my mind was always on about a six week rotation because that's all i could handle well now it's a year Right. I have a year calendar that lives in my head. So since April, for example, I've been working on an event that's happening in November. And if I spend an hour working on that, I'm like, wait, this isn't November. This isn't the fall. (laughs) Um, So for about a year, I have shifted my reading to a lot of books about design and design thinking. Yeah, because. I think we can read spirituality texts until we're blue in the face. And if we don't take that step in the kind of hero's journey, where we then bring back what we have found, then we, we aren't completed. And we, I don't think that it has to be, we come back to the community that exiled us. I certainly have not. So I can't support that as an idea, but we come back to some people, right? We return to the the world of our everyday life and say, here's what I have found. I would like to share it. Um, A lot of spirituality learning doesn't teach us how to do that. And to be quite honest, some of us have a kind of natural, I don't know, affinity for it. I've been speaking publicly since I was very young because I wanted to. Um, Mingling is absolutely atrocious. Like who wants to go to a room of 30 people and then talk to them? That is horrid for me. Uh, But standing on a stage, absolutely perfect. I just need 20 minutes to tell you a thing I've been thinking about. Uh, So I've been trying to figure out and, and figuring out through these books, like what does it mean to then shift our thinking in a way that says, here's how I can communicate this, here's how I can build this, and here's how I can do it in collaboration. So I've been reading these books from the design school at Stanford, which is just called the D School which I always wonder if they ran that through a committee that had any queer men on it. I'm like the D school friends, (laughs) come on now. Uh, but they're a really beautiful set of guides. There are 11 or 12 of them, um, that have really shifted my work in the kind of practical ways and kind of helped me understand, oh, here's some ways I've been sabotaging my own work, uh, because of a sense of duty or, you know, all the things that we do to get in our own way. Um, and it's been really valuable and it's been really magical to kind of deploy again things that are from outside of what we consider the spiritual studies the spiritual work uh in this in this regard uh and i think a lot of growth has happened for my community that i had been in the way of because of that um yeah. so i 10 out of 10 recommend those those books there's a really good one called design for belonging come on. Uh, there's a really brilliant one called this is a prototype, which you wouldn't expect, except that, especially I think for you, um, I'm not up on the, 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 the work like you are, but as a manifesting generator, this idea of, I don't know, maybe you don't do this, but I do this, A thing should work the first time. Yeah. And when it doesn't work, I have a really big struggle with that. And so this is a whole book about prototyping, like, Nothing works the first time. No one in history who ever did anything great did it the first time. Right. And I know that in my head and I say it to other folks and I will talk about, you know, we always say growth happens outside of the comfort zone while fighting tooth and nail to stay comfortable, like prototype. Oh, that's liberating. Uh, I built this Julian. God, you got me right there in the intro. So I recently built a public weaving installation, Julian. (laughs) Uh, And I deployed it at a conference called the Pedagogy and Theater of the Oppressed Conference, and it was an absolute failure. And so I set it up on Friday and nothing happened. And I came home Friday night feeling pretty bad about it. Saturday morning, I'm taking a shower where all true spiritual experiences happen. And I thought, oh, this is my first prototype. And yesterday was my first iteration of prototype one. What can I do today that can change it? And what's in my way? I'm like, oh, it's in the wrong space. I can't change that. Oh, I thought people would walk up and just start weaving because that's what I would do that's not how the rest of the world works, Darren. Um, so how do I adjust that? This has to be facilitated. Oh, I can make some signage this morning and put it up around the conference. Right? So like all of a sudden being freed from, I guess this just doesn't work to let me see what I can do. Um, so these books are an absolute, just gift, uh, that I would recommend for anyone who's trying to do any kind of leadership work, spiritual leadership work. Um, Acknowledge where you're in your own way, and then know that there are tools that will help. Um, and that there's not something wrong with you. Ethan is this incredible Buddhist teacher who says you are perfect just the way you are, and you could use a little work. (laughs)
0: Love it. I love it. Yes. And I just am like, that's right. You're right, Ethan (laughs) Nicktern. Yes. Yes. Totally. Wonderful. Yeah, I I definitely agree that spirituality doesn't always talk about how do you bring what you learned back. And you know, I've been pulling a lot of my inspiration from books on economics and systems and um, business. And of course, I'm also a software engineer, so I pull ideas from software engineering yeah. because we don't learn how to bring that stuff back and share it with other people. This has been a really great conversation. Um, how do people follow you, get in touch with you, learn more about your retreats and the different things that you're doing?
1: Yeah, so my website is dchitt.com, dchitt. Uh, I'm dchitt on Instagram. I post I like Instagram because it's visual language. So I post images there like everyone does. Uh, Folks can feel free to follow me on Facebook. There are only a few Darren Chittix in the world, uh, which is I check on it periodically to see if any new ones have emerged. But I think there are only three of us uh, and we're all on separate continents. Um. Yeah, those are all really, those are the ways. I'm always excited. I'm working on a bunch of new stuff right now. So that'll emerge through all of those avenues as it unfolds. Uh, and soon, you and I were talking earlier, soon I'll be back in Oaxaca, Mexico for a couple retreats. Uh, so if nothing else, you can live vicariously through the 10,000 photos and videos I will post of Teotitlan del Valle, which will be really
0: lovely. Yeah, that sounds lovely. I'm going to certainly enjoy watching this as well. So thank you so much for joining me today. And you've really shared a lot of really great and ideas. And just I hope that you've inspired a lot of our listeners to think a little differently about spirituality and belonging. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Julian.
0: I really appreciated it. Thank you for listening. This has been the Queer Spirituality Podcast with Julian and Hill. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving a rating on whatever site you get your podcasts at. Rating the show allows other people to discover it and be exposed to these ideas around queer spirituality. You can also find my blog and past episodes of this podcast at www.queerspirituality.net. That's www queerspirituality.net. You can also there find links to the Queer Spirituality Facebook group, my various social channels where you can get involved in the discussion or send me your feedback or questions or things you'd like to hear on the show. Thank you again for listening and for your support. Bright blessings.